we uh, sent out a note this week. I'm sure not all of you got it, and I'm sure not all of you were able to do it, but we requested that you uh, read Judges 20 and 21 in preparation uh, for today. We're going to uh, not read this very long passage, but um, I'm going to try to summarize it, and I encourage you, if you haven't gotten to read it, that you read it this week. We actually will deal with primarily chapter 20 this week and then 21 next week, but they're they're really held together. And as we talk about 21 next week, we're going to give a summary of the whole of the book of Judges as well. So this is how we're hoping to close out these final couple of weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, Judges has been a challenge emotionally uh, just because it it's so rough, it's so takes such an honest look at, at our sin, um, but it is nonetheless full of the grace of Jesus, and it looks to Jesus. Um, we have that storybook, children's storybook, that says every story whispers his name, and Kay, on the way here, said, you know, after reading these past two chapters, I think it kind of mouths his name, but you can't even hear the whisper hardly, you know, it's like... It's so hard to hear the whisper of Jesus' name, but nonetheless, it is here. And uh, So let's pray, and we'll go at it. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for your blunt honesty about who your people have been, who your people are, how very weak we are, how... We shockingly fail and how faithful you are to uphold your people nonetheless. Lord, what a faithful God you are, knowing when you even call us the depths of sin that we don't even see in our own lives, and yet you call us to yourself. Yet while we're yet sinners, Jesus died for us. While we were enemies, he reconciled us. While we were helpless and weak, he came to us. Lord, we thank you that you also see what we will do even after conversion. You, will, you know our failures. You know our struggles. And you continue You continue with your mighty arms to uphold us and draw us. I love that hymn that says, Oh Lord, if you've drawn a thousand times, draw once again, draw more. And that's really the story of each of our lives. Draw a thousand times. Every single person, you draw a thousand times. So Lord, now draw us and enable us to believe in your goodness and your greatness all the more. As we see your faithfulness even to this people. And may we believe that you will be faithful to us. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. So chapter 20 opens with Israel gathered together due to that gruesome and sickening fetish package that was delivered to every tribe in Israel as described at the end of chapter 19. All the tribes 
and their leaders are there, 400,000 sword-bearing warriors. Every tribe is there except Benjamin, where the atrocity of chapter 19 against the Levite's wife had taken place in the Benjamite town of Gibeah. Uh, We even see that uh, Benjamin doesn't even, they don't even show up, they don't even respond. So they hear this sanitized and carefully edited story of the atrocity from the Levite himself, as we saw last week, omitting, for instance, the part about his throwing his wife out the door to save his own skin. You kind of get sick listening to this guy. But that's all we hear about the Levite. The stories about how small things end up blowing up into gigantic things. And however he much he may whitewash his own involvement, it doesn't change the great evil of the Gibeah crowd that attacked his wife. And this great evil is underscored, as it was described in chapter 19, because the whole horrific night at Gibeah is told in a way that purposely reminds us of another horrific night that occurred hundreds of years earlier in a Canaanite town named Sodom. Yeah, of Sodom and Gomorrah reputation. And back there in Genesis, God had decided to bring judgment on Sodom and its sister city Gomorrah because of their raging evil. But Lot, Abraham's nephew, was living in Sodom at the time. So in Genesis 19, God sends two angels disguised as men to Sodom to bring out Lot and his family. And so when the angels show up at Sodom, Lot sees them, urges them to get out of the city square to come home and stay with him, just like the old man did in chapter 19 in Judges with the Levite. you got to get out of the town square and get home. So, the Lot feeds the two men just like the old men. Man feeds the Levite and his company. And in the same way, a crowd came from Sodom demanding that Lot give them the two men so they could attack them. Just like the crowd in Gibeah came to the old man demanding that he hand over the Levite so they could attack him. And finally, Lot offers his two daughters as a substitute, just like the old man offered his own daughter and the Levite's wife as a substitute. Now here the stories part because in Genesis 19, you're dealing with angels, okay? So when the men are pressing Lot and they're almost breaking the door down, the angel sticks his hand out, pulls Lot in, and blinds the crowd. And they disperse. The crowd disperses. But of course, in this latter story in Judges 19, the Levite throws out his wife and they abuse her all night. Now, the point is this. If you recall, the Levite in Judges 19 had specifically avoided the city Jebus because it was a Canaanite city because he was afraid of what might happen to him there only to come to an Israelite town, Gibeah, that turned out to be the worst kind of Canaanite town. The Levite had walked into Sodom and Gomorrah practically violent, oppressive, immoral, abusive to the weak. 
And the text is making it clear. Gibeah had become Sodom and Gomorrah. Gibeah had become the quintessential Canaanite city and must be treated as such by Israel. And that means judgment. That's what this is about. What do you do with this now Canaanite city that is acting just like Sodom and Gomorrah? Israel's unity at this point is impressive. Verse 1 says that they assembled as one man to Yahweh. Verse 8 says they rose up as one man to speak. Verse 11, that they gathered as one man against Gibeah. They're absolutely unified in purpose and action as, as all of Israel for the first time in Judges. That's impressive. That's amazing. This was not the case under Gideon or Jephthah or even under Deborah and Barak. Finally acting in concert as they were supposed to be in order to fight against the Canaanites. And that's what makes this so tragic, right? Because they're not gathered to get for the fight against Canaan. It's Israel against Israel. This is accented by the inquiry that Israel makes later in verse 18 when they're preparing the battle and they ask God, who shall go up first to us to fight against the people of Benjamin, our brothers? You see, the whole book of Judges begins like this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? That's how the book started. And now we have this same statement, but it's not against the Canaanites. It's against Benjamin. So we begin the book with Israel inquiring how to fight Canaanites. We end the book with Israel turning on itself. Israel attacking itself. Israel wiping out itself. So Israel is broken. And there's a tribe now hanging in the balance. Israel's integrity as a 12-tribe federation is on the brink of disaster. And Israel is doing what it must in the face of these violent men of Gibeah. But how tragic that it's come to this in Judges. And I want to pause just for a bit of application. When factions form within churches, and when churches actually split and divide, there's often only anger, accusations, ridicule, gossip, slander, sarcasm, and constant self-justification. And sometimes it's absolutely necessary to divide. Often not, but sometimes... Either the teaching of God's word has been so compromised or leadership has been so compromised or basic morality has been so compromised, one has no choice but to leave. And sometimes this even results in another church or denomination being formed. Okay. But even in that instance, when one could say that it's fully justified or even called for on biblical grounds, it is to be done with the greatest grief And sadness. Weeping. Weeping. Mourning and lament. In a cry to King Jesus to come and heal his church. To remove this evil from this world and from his people. And to restore us as one holy temple in his presence. Even when one might move forward trusting God and thanking God for his continual mercy. We cry out over the pain of a divided church. We cry out that he would deliver his people. I've had people 
in conversation asking about our church, not necessarily this one, but this one and others. And they'll say, why should I believe what you say when there's 25 other people out there saying different things? The first thing I say is, that is something to weep over. That is just something to weep over. That we're that divided. That you have to ask that question. Oh, Lord, bring us together. Oh, Lord, bring about unity in that final day. Lord, come quickly. Do we weep over the brokenness of his church? Over the countless divisions, so many of them frivolous. All the more if division occurs within a body over lesser issues and people begin to close ranks and form gossip and slander chat rooms, so to speak, that generate suspicion and cowardly attacks, should we realize that we're becoming instruments of evil and not good? All the more should we humble ourselves before God, cry out for His mercy and salvation and for the unity for which only His Spirit can give and maintain. Yeah, we, the, the, the elders, we try to remind ourselves constantly because we've had a great degree of peace in the last few years as a church. We really try to remind ourselves constantly, oh, Lord God, keep us, keep us, keep us, keep us. In this incident, you see, teaches us how one broken relationship in one home between a Levite and his secondary wife ends up embroiling the whole nation in a war in which the end, some 65,000 warriors lost their lives and many more women and children. And so always, always, always pray with humility and a sense of helplessness, our real helplessness, that God would preserve us as a people. Our denomination, Christianity as a whole, we are just this weak, just this combustible, just like stumbling drunks on a busy street apart from God's grace. As Jesus said in John 15, you can do no good apart from me. Do we believe that? Do we believe that in regard to our unity as a church? So, the disunity, the brokenness of Israel is to be mourned. And whatever victory occurs here, it's colored, right? It's colored with sadness and tragedy. Well, in verse 12... Israel approaches Benjamin and asks that they simply turn over the bad guys from Gibeah, right? Turn them over. We'll bring judgment on them. This thing will be over. But Benjamin, here's the shocker, they refuse to turn over the rapists, right? And they stand with them. They stand with Gibeah, the new Sodom. They say, in effect, we will not be Israelites. We are Canaanites. As Ralph Davis puts it, for Benjamin, blood is thicker than covenant with Yahweh. Blood is thicker than covenant with Yahweh. And so, we go to all-out war. The numbers are given there in the passage. 400,000 Israelites to almost 27,000 Benjamites. But the Benjamites have this, the equivalent of 700 long distance marksmen able from their left hand side to pick off soldiers with deadly accuracy. A little hint of what's to come. 
The numbers look great. Whoa, no big deal here. We're going to take them out easily. But this is a little hint of what's going to happen. So the pattern of the three battles is, is the same. They, inqu- they inquire of God. He gives an answer. They attack. They're defeated. They inquire of God. He gives the answer. They attack. They're defeated. They inquire of God. He gives the answer. They attack. Victory. That's the field, that's the labor of this passage. In the first two defeats, at the hands of Benjamin, it, does, it mentions no Benjamin losses, while Israel, Israel loses 22,000 in the first time, 18,000 in the second battle. H- how could that happen? Benjamin loses nobody, and Israel loses 40,000 men. It's kind of like a holed-up cougar surrounded by a huge pack of dogs. But in the first encounters, it's the cougar that's killing the dogs, not the dogs killing the cougar. And then Israel's inquiry of God changes each time. At first, they simply ask, who should go up? And he says, Judah. We'll talk about that in a minute. Just because that, that's what happened at the first of Judges in the first battle. This seems appropriate that God would say Judah because the woman that was violated is from Judah. So Judah should take the initiative, probably the Levi as well. And it's wise because Judah had provided excellent leadership in the first chapter against the Canaanites. And it seems like they would be a good choice again. But this makes us realize that, again, this is holy war just like the first chapter, but it's holy war against Israel. After the first loss, Israel still encourages one another, it says in verse 22. They again take up their positions against Benjamin. This time they weep before the Lord. And they ask not just who shall go up, but you can see their hesitancy Shall we go up again to battle against the Benjamites? This time it adds our brothers. Should we? Should we do this? We don't know. We just lost. Are we doing the right thing here? What's going on? Should we do this? Are we right in attacking them at all? The short answer comes. Go against them. And then again they have 18,000 people fall. A third time they come. This time everything's intensified. They weep, they fast, they present offerings to the Lord. As Barry Webb says, we've clearly reached a crisis point. The Israelites have no more stomach for the fight. They will go on only if they are forced to do so. They even name the alternative as a possibility they hope for. The question this time is, shall we go and fight or shall we cease? Should we stop this right now and go home? Is that what should happen? I mean, we've we've gotten beaten twice. And this time, they're not only told to go into battle, but God says, tomorrow I will give them into your hands. And it's very intense because when they ask the question, it really reads this way, literally, shall we go against Benjamin, my brother? Intense personal relationship, my brother. And God even answers in the light way. He says, yes, you shall go against him. And the intensity of the personal relationship, realizing the intimacy, yes, yes, go against them. 
And finally, this time, uh, or, or at this time, finally at this time, the only name that's mentioned in a whole, since the whole of chapter 19, this whole episode, is in verse 28, that Phineas, the grandson of Moses' brother Aaron, is the priest ministering at the tabernacle, which we realize has been there in Bethel the whole time. Phineas has been there the whole time. This dates the whole event as very early in Judges' period and shows just how quickly things dissipated in Judges, just how quickly they turned into Canaan. This third battle, the final battle, takes up twice as many verses as the other two battles combined. Israel finally uses its numbers to an advantage. And Israel uses this trick that they had used in the initial taking of Canaan against the city of Ai. Because their first fight with Ai, they got defeated because they had sinned against God through Achan and there had been a defeat. So when they come again after repentance to attack Ai, Ai's thinking, hey, we got this. And so they use the tactic of drawing Ai away from the city. They do the same thing here. Really, by God's providence, the Benjamites were set up to think, we got this. And so when they go to battle this time, the Israelites first plant an ambush on the city of Gibeah. They fall back, and the writer indicates they drew them away from the city. It's ominous sound. They drew them away from the city. They fall back. The ambush attacks Gibeah, and at an agreed-upon point, when smoke rises from the city, Israel is reinforced and attacks back after falling back. The Benjamites turn, and this is the climax of the passage. They see that disaster has come upon them. They see that they're lost because their city is going up in smoke. And now the men that have been in the city are coming against them as well. So they're being pinched together. They run. And it's so sad. It's, it says literally, the, but the battle clung to them like a man who's on fire and he can't get away and he's running and the fire is on his body. The battle clung to them. And in three different stages, first 18,000 of them were fallen, and then 5,000 more, and then 2,000 more. And it ends up that 600 men alone escape. And so, victory! (laughs) You know, you just feel it. Yes, they won, but they beat themselves. They lost their own Israelites. They lost their own tribe in this process. And these 600 men have no wives. So it looks like Benjamin is snuffed out. They're gone. We just lost a tribe in this whole thing. And we're going to talk some about how God's mercy worked itself out in this and the next story. But we have to kind of ask this question. We have to definitely ask this question. What do we make of this war? What do we make of these defeats and then this victory? What's the stance of the narrator? Is God for what they're doing or against what they're doing? And why do they hear God tell them to go and then they lose these men in battle? Does that mean, on the one hand, that 
God is bringing judgment on them as well as Benjamin. Or, and I like, Ralph Davis gives both of these options, and I like the second one by far. Is it a specific incidence of God's mysterious ways? You see, each time they made inquiry specifically to God, and he told them to go and who to go. This is the narrator's assessment, too, that they gathered together in verse 1 to the Lord, to Yahweh. He says that's what they did. They gathered to Yahweh to, to do his will. And then they called out to him and asked him, and he told them, and they acted. So we're to assume, especially because that uh, it, it's described in the same way as the first chapter when they went against the Canaanite town. Why, though, is it so hard? Why did it not go well? Well, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever obeyed God's word in something that's clearly spelled out in his word? It's not like you heard a voice, okay? (laughs) You're really trying to obey his word. And things fall apart completely. In fact, you can even look at what you did and think, if I had not tried so carefully to obey him in the particulars, then things wouldn't have turned out as bad as they are. But I did, and here's my situation. Yeah, yeah, that does and will happen. And how do you deal with it? How do you deal with this God that commands you, and then the battle seems to be lost? Things seem to fall, the bottom seems to fall out. You make the right decision at work to be honest or not to gossip or to submit to authority. And somehow things get so turned around that you're the one misunderstood. You're the one ostracized. You're the one that's ignored for the promotion because you did the right thing. Joseph knows a little bit about that, doesn't he? He didn't sleep with Potiphar's wife. Fully offered in the whole thing. Continued wonderful relationship that's private. My husband will never know. I'm yours. He says no. And what does he get for it? He gets thrown into jail. I can't imagine what I would have been saying at that point. What? You know, I did the right thing. You know, that, that's my reaction, okay? So, <laughs> as I think about it. How could you do this to me? What are you doing? But apparently, Joseph, when he was in jail, continued to trust God and continued to obey God and continued to honor God. You begin tithing, and then the bottom falls out of your finances. Unlike the pretty story that the recruiter gave you. (laughs) Yes, when you start tithing, everything will be perfect after that. And as we see in this passage, there can be terrible loss as you seek to obey God. Terrible loss. You seek to obey God carefully in regard to your children. You teach them the word. You pray for them. You give yourself to them. You love them in every way you know how. But one or more not responding to the gospel. You're like, I thought you promised. I thought you promised. If I did the right things, you know, the right answer would come forth. 
the right result. You know, in Psalm 73, the psalmist is struggling with this, especially because he knew a lot, of, a lot of people that didn't follow God. And their lives seemed to be turning out pretty good. Seemed to be doing all right for themselves. And he says later in verse 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. All my, this has just been in vain. In his worst moment, he said, that's what I said. That's, that's how I felt. So, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you by this passage that loss does not mean abandonment. It does not mean abandonment. In fact, loss can just as easily be read as God's attendance and God's favor, if you read it right. Think of Jesus. You think that if you loved everybody's socks off, that if you invest heavily in sacrificial service, especially to 12 guys into whom you pour your life night and day for three years, then you expect that when the going gets really bad, you have a network of friends you can depend on that will come through for you. You'd think, right? Jesus did that perfectly. Not one blemish, not one act of faithlessness, not one omission, not even the tiniest neglect of anyone around him. And yet, when the soldiers came for him that night, all his friends abandoned him. So, from obedience, right? Abandonment? After I did all this? And you'd think that having obeyed God in everything, in every way, at all times, to be the actual expression of God's holiness. The one person that could say, my food is to do the will of my Father who's in heaven. You'd think you wouldn't have to be crying out in the most horrible physical emotion and spiritual agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? You'd think. And even at that point, here's an amazing statement. And some of you have seen this in the study in First Peter that Brian is doing in Sunday school. But it says of Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When he had been apparently abandoned to utter destruction by God and man after living perfectly and loving perfectly, he kept entrusting himself to God. And here's the amazing thing, folks. It's at that point of trusting God when everything had caved in that he made his final, most glorious and beautiful offering of holiness up to God and became our substitute. There's like the denouement of his obedience and perfection that he would trust God at the point of utter abandonment of God and man. 
he would, he would glorify the Father and say, I trust you. I look to you. You are righteous. You're committed to me. I'm yours. You see, Peter's speaking to slaves, right? He says, hey, if you do something evil and are beaten for it, fine. But when you do something good and you suffer for it and you endure and you keep trusting God, there you go. That's it. That's like Jesus. That's like God himself who Jesus is showing forth because Christ also suffered for you. And see, right after it says, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, it says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. See, it it combines this entrusting himself to the Father, right shoulder to shoulder with, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so... Brothers and sisters, God is working out His mysterious and wonderful purpose in your life. And He he tells us in Romans 8.32 that if God did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? We've spoken about this before, but this is the logic that God wants to put before us. I would leave nothing good from you not one single good from your life because I didn't leave off Jesus, my own son. And so you can be assured, whatever you're going through, I never am withholding anything from you good. Never. No matter how much evil, no matter if you are killed in persecution, I'm never withholding good from you. The good of making you like Jesus. The good of drawing you for myself. The good of making you an instrument of light and blessing to other people. I will never turn away from that good. Because I didn't even withhold my own son. And so, like Abraham, who's at the... End of his rope, no chance that he could have a child. It says, even then, Abraham glorified God by trusting him. And that's, that, that's the chief way Jesus glorified God on the cross is he just continued to trust him and put himself in the Father's hands. And we, trembling, broken, devastated, the life is sucked out of us, our hope seems to be buried, we can still look to this one who did not hold himself back, but as the song that was just sung, he came all the way down. (laughs) He came all the way down. You can trust this one who came all the way down. You can trust this one who put himself in the Father's hands so that he could bear your sin. And he imparts his spirit to you and nourishes you so that you too can trust God and glorify God after the pattern of Christ because you're joined to Him. His life is in you. You become like Him. These bright, bright lights of glory of people that trust God in all circumstances. Oh, may God give it. May God grant it for His glory. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we... 
Thank you for your everlasting commitment to the good of your people. Help us to be like children. Even in the midst of our crying out, our saying how long, which you put in our mouths to say in the Psalms, in the midst of our cries of agony, our cries for deliverance, our cries that you would come and sweep away evil on this world and bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. In the midst of all of these cries, Lord, give us grace to be children who trust a father that they don't completely understand, a daddy who loves their socks off, but sometimes overseas they're getting shots and overseas surgeries and overseas things that seem so crazy and backwards and absolutely not understandable. And yet he does it out of love. Oh, Lord, give us this grace. Give us grace to trust in what you've done on the cross, that you are the Lord who came all the way down. And you will come all the way down into our pain. You know what it is to experience this pain. You yourself cried out, My God, my God, why? And you certainly identify with us and enter into our whys and our how longs and our agony and our brokenness and our emptiness and you hold us up as one who knows what it is. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're such a Savior. We praise you. Amen.